Hi, my name's Georgina Cook, and this is the Vision of Sound podcast. Conversations at the crossroads where music and art meet. I'm a photographer, artist, and passionate music lover whose camera has portrayed everything from punk gigs to Glastonbury, sweaty drum and bass raves, and the dark dance floors of early dubstep. Vision of Sound is my chance to celebrate other creative people making work about or inspired by music. I'm really excited to be chatting to photographers and artists, publishers, designers and filmmakers about their perspectives of the sounds they love. For this episode, I'm joined by writer, broadcaster and publisher Emma Warren. We first met around 2005 on the dubstep dance floors of DMZ and Forward. I'm honoured to now call Emma a friend and sometimes collaborator. Emma's life is so deeply rooted in music, culture and communities. Her career began pretty much in the 90s when she was writing for magazines like Jockey Slut and The Face. Now Emma writes her own books and pamphlets and also broadcasts on Worldwide FM every month. She's mentored and taught young people at Live Magazine and London College of Communication and compiled compilations for Soul Jazz Records, as well as interviewing such luminaries as Bjork, Brian Eno and MIA. In 2018, Emma started Sweet Machine, a publishing house dedicated to printing stories that you might not have time to read online. Her first book, Make Some Space, is both a history of the Total Refreshment Centre and a manifesto for documenting culture. In 2019, Emma published a pamphlet with Rough Trade about London Steam Down Night and Collective, which became one of the Irish Times 2019 Books of the Year. Some of the things we talk about in this episode include documenting your culture. Documenting your culture is an act of resistance. Musicking is any of us that are involved in making a vibe which the music feeds on, because the music doesn't exist in the absence of the vibe, and the vibe requires a whole load of different people. And getting to know what you're repping. All of us who want to represent must recognise that we've got a really big responsibility there, and the first responsibility is to get to know. As an aside, I've been told that we sound quite similar, so <laughs> I'm wondering if we need some kind of whistle or klaxon um, in between our conversation. You know, I reckon we can trust the good listeners to tell between us, just about. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing that I'm interested in to start with is your experience of music growing up in mm-hmm. London, mm-hmm. where you went, what you listened to, things like that. Growing up in like the very far edges of deepest suburban southeast London, what was happening elsewhere kind of filtered out to us but it actually filtered out from two directions. It filtered out from the city, those distant signals of what was happening like uptown and in all those exciting places, but it also filtered out from further edges of southeast London. Something that I've come to understand that I didn't really know at the time is that the whole soul boy culture, which was around in the kind of 70s and 80s, spread around all of southeast London, further out towards the coast, into Kent and Essex and, and those kind of surrounding places, and that I also picked up signals from there as well. So I definitely picked up the kind of edges of sound system culture, which was kind of further into London than I was living. But I also picked up the edges of soul boy culture and the remnants of that that was coming in from like the soul boy weekenders and things that happened in a more even more suburban southeast London context than I was growing up in. I was like just enjoyed music generally like I didn't have a particularly musical family my parents famously only ever went to one gig and that was to see Acker Bilk like the most mainstream clarinetist Acker Bilk Acker Bilk 
Two Bilk. First name Acker, surname Bilk. Did Strangers on the Shore or something. That's an unusual name. I've yeah. never heard of him before. <laughs> but my parents did actually have records, so there was like a little stack of sevens for me to play around with. My dad was really into the Beatles and my mum was very into Motown. So it's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of family music growing up, but not really an awful lot. I'm working on a new book at the moment about dancing. And so I've been thinking a lot about my early experiences dancing. And actually, it goes back earlier than I thought, particularly to this place in Orpington called The Civic, which was like a Friday night disco for teenagers. No booze, just like a trestle table with like shrimps and cola bottles, but really amazing music. That was the first time where I was in a context where I was hearing really good music, played through a good sound system in an environment that was different than the one that I was actually growing up in because there were kids coming from all over. And it's not like a famous place at all. It was just like any old suburban kind of like underage disco. But it's really been occurring to me as I've been writing about it that those places are absolutely intrinsic to the way that British music culture developed underage disco, the official kind of under-18s parties that particularly used to happen like later on around drum and bass times. And so I think when we think about music culture and nightclub culture and dance music culture in this country, there are so many players that are just like forgotten about, left behind, not considered relevant. And um, I'm enjoying the process of sort of uncovering some of them, giving them honour. So I saw you do your talk last night on Make Some Space, your book, and you asking for people to give you names of really important places. Yeah, yeah the Roll Call of Honour. Yeah, is that one of your places then? Yeah, so I actually added it to the Roll Call last night. The Civic, Orpington. And I've been adding it to the Roll Call because it was the very first place that my teenage self experienced some of the music that I was hearing around me. So another source of music when I was like in my early to mid-teens was the boys I was at school with. They had like all these street sounds, compilations and electro things and early hip-hop things. And I had no access to this. I didn't know where you got them from, where they came from, how you knew about this stuff, but they all seemed to know about it. And I really was intrigued by this and I really liked what I heard. So there was something definitely about feeling like I wanted access to something that was just slightly out of my reach and recognising that I was going to have to like work my way towards it because it wasn't easy necessarily for me to, to get it. I mean, in retrospect, I could have just gone into a record shop and asked for it, but I didn't really know that was possible. When did you start writing about music and your musical experiences? Um, I did do a pop quiz in a school newspaper when I was at secondary school. And the only question I remember from it is, what is Whitney Houston's middle name? <laughs> I still know the answer. Elizabeth. Obviously, like, I haven't looked at that since I made the pop quiz, so that might be factually incorrect. But I know that that was one of the questions because I was really into Whitney Houston. So I always liked writing and I loved reading. I've always read, like, you know, practically got two books on the go at once, reading one with one eye and the other with the other eye. But I didn't actually start writing about music until I went to university when I was 18 to Manchester Poly and I used to practice writing album reviews in my bedroom and just thinking about how I might try and translate how I heard it into words on a page and then I started writing for the student paper doing club reviews for them but before that I'd been going out for years by the time I'd got to Manchester I'd been going out for like two or three years if you count the civic four years <laughs> if you count school discos which I do maybe five years veteran at 18 and actually that's what I really noticed where I first met you in that kind of those sort of dubstep times was the very clear presence of people who were very young but had been in it for years and I think that idea of having like very young veterans in a scene is really important and we should be very grateful to all the people that made that happen bouncers who let people in promoters who put things on for like kids people who just don't mind about the young ones being there even though like maybe they shouldn't in some ways be there yeah that's a good point I, I went to a fair few underage were they like were they like official underage things or were they like youth club things um official underage 
There was quite a lot of them in Croydon, like mm. garage nights and stuff. Nicky Black Market, I seem to remember him doing a lot of under-18s drum and bass raves. I'm in the process of immersing myself in that part of British music culture for the next thing I'm working on. Nice. So going back to you being at university in Manchester... Mm. Were you writing about music in Manchester then? I was a bit. I was going out a lot. The very first interview I did was with someone actually who did the door rather than the DJs. Because I think I'm always interested in like those outside characters, the, the ones who contribute but aren't necessarily that obvious. And actually, you know, I think about it, the fact that the first person I interviewed was Elton, who did the door at Most Excellent. <laughs> um, it's probably a, a theme which has continued. <laughs> Have you worked with lots of visual artists and photographers in your career then? Yeah, this friend of mine described me the other day as a reformed music journalist. <laughs> so there was a period where I was, I suppose, a sort of proper-ish music journalist in the sense that that's what I was doing most of the time. Every time I was on an assignment, I'd be off with Elaine Constantine or John Spinks or some really excellent photographers so yeah, working with people like Elaine Constantine was was a real for me instruction in how the other side of it worked you know I knew how to be able to go into a room and like soak up everything that's happening with my eyes and my ears and sort of integrate it through myself and be like mm, what does this mean what's happening oh look at that person's shoes or uh, look at that thing that's happening in the corner or like oh my god that little snippet that I've just overheard on the way to the toilets it's perfect I knew how to collect all the information sort of through my visual senses and hold it until I made my notes or until I wrote my story. I knew how to draw it all back. But I didn't know how people took pictures to do the same thing. And it was really interesting working with someone like her to see that she was doing exactly the same thing as me, but she was reorganising the information to be presented visually. So she would be seeing what was going on and noticing what was happening and thinking about what was visually interesting about a situation. And then she would be organising the people into scenarios or waiting for the scenario to show up where she could take the picture that did the same thing as my side of it, the writing. So I definitely learned a lot about that. And also I ended up assisting on a lot of shoots. So if you're the journalist in that situation, you're quite often the person that's holding the, the reflector material. My shoes would often end up in shots. I like having a task, so I always quite liked it when the photographers wanted me to do something. Hold this, stand there, do that. I liked it. I like what you were saying about the importance of doormen in clubs, people that are kind of part of music and part of a scene, but aren't necessarily the ones in the spotlight. So I guess writers and photographers mm -hmm. and artists would come into that as well. Yes, definitely. And you, you've got that lovely quote at the beginning of mm. Make Some Space about musicking. Yeah. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? I'd love to, because this was one of the greatest revelations of recent years for me, was to find this term, musicking. It comes from a guy called Christopher Small, who's a writer, an academic, an educator as well, who recognised that in many of our Western European languages, we'd lost a term to describe music as a process, not as a product. So in his view, music isn't notes on the page, the tune you download, um, the finished thing, which is replicated perfectly, often in a classical tradition, which, which he was writing about a lot. That's the thing, that's the music, and it's set in stone, and it was made by a special one, and you're not like them. And that's all crap, because actually what he says is music is a process. Any of us that are involved in the process of music are musicking. It's active. The musicers, as far as he is concerned, yes, are the players or the DJs or the producers, but it's also the people who make the room happen. It's the, the door people, it's the dancers, it's the attentive listeners. It's any of us that are involved in making the vibe which the music feeds on because the music can't exist in the absence of the vibe and the vibe requires a whole load of different people for it to like really flourish. On a very personal level, when I read his writing on it, I suddenly understood what I'd been doing my whole life, <laughs> which is I've been musicking. 
And I feel really good about having accepted that. So people sometimes say to me, oh, are you a musician? And I always used to go, no, no, I'm not, no, no, I'm not one of those like special ones. No, 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 no. I just like do some things, writing. And I feel like I can be less apologetic about it now. Yeah, music, I contribute. I contribute through the medium of writing. That's the kind of line of music that I bring. And it's an important line. I'm not saying my writing's important, but I'm saying all of us who contribute through our listening, our writing, our photography, our welcoming smiles when we let someone in, <laughs> the way in which we don't do aggressive searches. <laughs> so yeah. Musicking is a totally amazing concept and it's been really great for me to see how many people have, have had the same experience as me in terms of that word being a form of liberation. Oh, I'm music? Wow, okay, well I'm just going to do it a lot more then. So I feel like it's a very useful phrase and um, you know, Christopher Small is no longer with us on this plane but I feel like he's with me quite a lot. He had a boyfriend called Neville Braithwaite who was a dancer so I've got this kind of image of like Christopher and Neville dancing and being really happy about the fact that their concept has a, another currency in people who've read my book. So yeah, thank you Christopher Small. If we imagine a performance in which the members of the orchestra sold the tickets, arranged their own seating and moved the piano around and where everyone, audience as well as conductor, soloist and orchestra members stayed afterwards to clean up there would be brought into existence a set of human relationships another kind of society it would not necessarily be a better society but we may be sure that those taking part would not remain strangers to one another for very long and that's by christopher small from musicking the meanings of performing and listening have you seen the documentation of music change since you started writing about music? So if I think about, like, if I just pick some of the environments that I was in from when I was a kid to now and how that was documented. So the very first things that I went to, which were like these sort of underagey things, there's no documentation at all because you're just in it. You're not even thinking about it. I mean, no, you would document it because you'd talk to your friends about it afterwards. Oh, my God, like, did you hear it when he played that? Um, like, when he played 900 number and, like... Everyone was dancing, it was really cool. Oh yeah, I don't like the bit where they do, because they also sometimes used to play like old soul records. I don't like the bit where they do those dances, like those old old dances. So we would document through conversation and, and that's an important form of documentation actually. I think we underestimate the stories that we hold within ourselves about the places where we've been. If I then jump forwards a bit to like very late 80s where I went to my first proper clubs, Heaven, so Under the Arches at Charing Cross, very famous nightclub, gay club, started out as a roller disco. And then also hosted a load of very important, like, late Acid House, early hardcore things. There were some people who had cameras because I've seen the photographs, but I never saw anyone with a camera in there. So photography, not much. Video, no, because, again, that technology was very new then. And, again, there is video of some of those places, but, again, I never saw anyone with a camera. And proper music journalists probably didn't go to some of those places. If I fast forward a bit, the documentation changes with technology. So when cameras become cheaper, more people have cameras in clubs. Lots of places would have got documented more. One of the constants, though, is that in any kind of dance, you're always going to have someone who's looking through a lens, even if they're not looking through a lens. Sure. They're the natural photographers, right? Like in the dance, you're also always going to have someone who is listening as a potential producer. And they're picking up all the information and they're thinking, oh my God, that sounds amazing. How am I going to make that sound? How did they make that sound? Where did that sound come from? And there'll be people like me who are fashioning lines of text as you're in the dance. So you're there and you're like remembering things, you're remembering the way something happens and for that thought to become lodged in your memory because you might want to use it later. 
So I think the potential for documentation is always there in the dance because the whole point of the dance is that we are there and we are engaged in it and that we are paying attention. And attention, of course, in our language has an economic value because we describe it as paying attention. We're not looking attention or having attention or using attention. We are paying attention because we recognise on some deep level that attention has an economic value to it. And obviously all those people in Silicon Valley that are tweaking Snapchat to make us spend an extra three seconds here or an extra five minutes there or dead scrolling for another ten minutes on whatever... They know that attention is an economy. So in the dance, we are paying attention because we're involved in a very profound economy of listening and engaging and absorbing and contributing. And that is unchanging. What about when you were writing about the Total Refreshment Centre for your book, Make Some Space? Were there many pictures or things that you could use? Now, that's a funny thing, because whilst I say that that attention thing is unchanging, obviously that was massively disrupted by the introduction of, of phones on dance floors. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, because actually things are just things, aren't they? There's loads of good things about that, but then there's also some difficulties. Total Refreshment Centre, however, was kind of like, I describe it as a bit slippery time-wise. Bit of a time machine. It had a vibe where... In that room, you could have been in 1996, or you could have been in 2006, or you could have been in 2016. You could also have probably been in an earlier phase as well, but it, it had this kind of um, lack of clarity about when it was. Part of that, I think, is to do with the fact that there wasn't a lot of phones. People weren't doing a lot of recording on their phones because the vibe was so powerful that people just didn't just draw for their phones. It was much more about, like, oh, this is really great and I'm in it, and wow, I can't believe this is happening. And also, actually, an audience had been schooled in attention at things like Brainchild and Steez. Groups of people in their late teens and early 20s that were very into listening attentively. So all of that I'm saying to try and, to try and explain why there were hardly any photographs of things at Total Refreshment Centre, even though there were tons of photographers who went there. Some amazing photographers who are, like, right in the middle of the community, you know, like, bang in the total belly of the beast who have hardly any photographs of Total Refreshment Centre. And I think that tells you something about the vibe. And so maybe in a way, vibe can cancel active documentation. Vibe can mean that you have to make the moment document rather than just doing it all the time. One day in the
So when I was doing the book and looking for images, it was actually really difficult. It took me ages to find the images that I've got. And the images I've got, there's not a lot more. <laughs> there's one image per chapter, mostly different photographers. So there is a really interesting thing there about the documentation of the culture, the lived experience of a culture, and where documentation fits in, because I think the living part of it has to come first. Absolutely. It's important to understand something, I think, before you document it. So I'm interested in that from you because were you always just kind of like doing things or did you decide at some point, now I have a task and I'm going to do it? I was already photographing drum and bass and events at the Black Sheep Bar in Croydon, which is where I met a lot of the DJs and producers that we both know. And when those people kind of transitioned into making dubstep music, I didn't think twice about taking my camera into those clubs. I do now, though. If I go to a night now that I've not been to before or I'm introduced to a new scene, I won't go in there straight with my camera at all. Like, I'll take time to understand it, get to know people, kind of earn my right to do that. I think that's really important because those of us who have that kind of pull to document in some shape or form writers photographers illustrators you know all of us who kind of um want to represent what we're doing must recognize that we've got a really big responsibility there and the first responsibility is to get to know and to understand where you fit in it it's a question of ethics really isn't it about understanding that what you do is going to have an effect because your pictures the decisions you made about what to look at and what not to look at are seen to tell the whole story, but obviously what we don't see is what you didn't shoot. For me, the people I choose to talk to, and I know in the past I've chosen to talk to the wrong people and I've perpetuated stories which were not accurate by not being careful enough. And I try really hard to do that properly now and I still make mistakes and I have made mistakes even recently with things that I, I feel like I could have done differently or better. But I feel like we need to know that what we do has an effect and that we need to really think carefully about who is in the story, who's left out of the story, who do we not even see as being relevant to the story. And I think a period of understanding and getting to know and doing your respectful research of like getting to know is really important. Often part of the process of documenting is an element of you get to know the more you document. So the more I photograph, the more I understand. Mm. So it's kind of a cycle mm. in a way. But do you need a camera to photograph? I mean, if we're talking about like documentation also existing in our bodies, our memories, our conversations, can you start to take pictures by just looking and seeing? Do you actually have to always take the shot to take the shot? Do you know what I mean? I totally know what you mean. Is There's a big difference between going to a night, a rave or a dance or something, or live music thing, without my camera. The memories that I have of it are so much more real because I'm feeling them I'm feeling the experience in my body mm. whereas with a camera it's much more of an outward thing I'm experiencing it through the camera I've always said it's like a key but it's also like a wall it's both my notebook even if it's like a metaphorical notebook is also the same so I know that when I was working more professionally as a journalist if I was going to write about something I would attend in a very particular way I would be almost like at a very specific angle to the thing I wouldn't just be like in the room and like, you know, enjoying it, I would be like absorbing, noticing, logging, observing, scanning, doing all these different things. And so my relation to it was completely different. I think I've learned over the years how to be both in it and observant. And that's actually a really nice place to be, to be like fully in something, but also in a very relaxed and light way, absorbing it all. Mm. And then I can sift through it later. 
I don't actually have to do the sifting on the night of like, mm, that's the thing I'm going to remember. That's the thing I'm going to focus on. That's interesting. It's like, I'm going to take it all in every single drop of it mm. and I'm going to lock it inside me and then I've got all this amazing material that I can work through later and that's about acceptance and absorption and immersion and all those beautiful things and I think that's why I can do like better work now because I'm fully in it that's nice I don't know if remove is necessary journalistic remove it's a, it's a joke anyway it doesn't really exist because none of it's objective journalists bring so much bias with them documenters too so I think a process of like actually accept accepting that you're in it and that you're of it for me is a good place to be and then you can work through the ethics of it from that position from within the ethics of without are murkier I think we need those people too but it requires some quite rigorous uh, like checklisting on yourself about whether or not you're the right person to tell that story in the first place and whether or not the story that you end up telling perpetuates structural bias which is the kind of undercurrent reason why the act of documentation can be a problem because people just go in and shoot the same things perpetuate the same stereotypes rather than looking for the nuance um this comes up in the chapter of make some space mm titled documenting your culture and also in an article that you wrote for quietus about how documenting your culture is an act of resistance when did that idea come to you first of all documenting your culture is an act of resistance but for those of us who are documenting culture that often comes from the structural oppression of racism but who didn't experience racism ourselves because of our white skin and we owe an extra debt to recognizing that documenting culture properly deciding whether or not we do or don't tell a story and remembering what we do and don't perpetuate is an act of allyship and it's actually anti-racist work. And so getting involved and doing stuff from within can be really good anti-racist work. And I think any of us who benefit from this culture need to be overt and strong in the fact that we recognise that structural racism is an evil that affects all of us, but it affects those of us with more melanin obviously much more strongly than it does those of us who are low melanin like myself. So I think that explicit anti-racism framing of our work is really important and I think us white people who document these things need to be talking to each other much more about it. And I've had cause to do this recently and it's really good actually to talk to other white people about this because we need to start asking ourselves some questions about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And yeah, it's like London, but London's always mixed. Yeah, yeah, London is mixed. But the mix is an addition to culture formed under oppression. And if we didn't experience that oppression ourselves or in our direct families, then we need to really remember that. We need to know that and we need to come into those situations recognising it. So I think for me, that explicit awareness developed over quite a long period of time. I'd say for like for whatever reason, I'm naturally just like very right on and I always have been. <laughs> I like I'm just it's like I'm terminally right on I can't help it however that was really honed and sharpened by six years I spent working on live magazine which was a youth-run publication in Brixton most of our contributors were aged between 14 and 21 most of them were just like young people from Brixton and surrounds um, living like normal Brixton and surrounds type situations most of them would be described as black or brown there was the occasional white kid and some of them were living very, very, very frontline situations, very frontline friends and family situations. And through that experience, I recognised that those young people who I knew as graphic designers or people who were learning Mandarin on YouTube or hilarious writers or incredible thinkers were having a very different experience outside the office than white kids. Like my white kid, for example, I have a child 
who's like a, you know, an adult now. But at this time he was maybe like, I don't know, 12-ish, younger than the kids I was working with. But I recognised that he was having a very different experience walking down the street with his friends than these young people that I was working with, who whilst it was a professional relationship, it was one of those like brilliantly um, unprofessional, professional relationships where it's based more on what is right than a checklist of how you behave with the young people. And we were all in it together. And that created some very deeply bonded relationships of family and kin. It developed kinship. So I am now in kinship with many of the people who I met as young people then. And so I recognised in a very lived personal way because of my relationships with these people that structural racism wasn't or racism wasn't just like a concept which was bad this was like a rawly painful embarrassing humiliating horrible awful thing that was affecting many people who I love and that I could do a tiny something about that and that every tiny something that I could do I should do and then I would do and now I will do and I am committed to doing as as well as I can on that front and I'm very grateful to people who tell me when I'm not quite doing it well enough <laughs> because those conversations are not not easy for people to have but you know we as white people doing this work need to hear them um, and we as white people need to talk to each other to try and make sure we're doing the work as, as well as we can. It's so important in music because so much of what we listen to is rooted in people that have come here from other places and yeah it's so important to kind of remember that when we're documenting yeah and also we have to remember the kind of colonial framing of all of that and I must point anyone who's listening here to a writer and thinker called Tej Adelaide um, she makes loads of radio programs as well so sometimes her influence on things is not always obvious that there was a documentary recently about a racist white supremacist composer called John Powell which she was heavily heavily involved with but you wouldn't know that unless you listen to the end and listen to the credits but She's been very influential on me on understanding the colonial framing of all of this. And obviously the quote from the thinker Siva where he says, we are here because you were there, helps us all understand why we have multicultural countries. And as a country, we're not very keen to look at that to really understand, you know, the kind of the, the sort of original sin that was perpetuated in the name of England or Britain or whatever. And so I think, you know, it is heavy and it is serious. But it's important that we just understand that and we do the work, we do the reading. We just like get to know and then operate from a position of having got to know. We have work to do. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. How do you teach documenting your culture to young people then? Say it live. It's just about doing, learning through doing, experiential learning. So at Live Magazine, you wouldn't come along and come to a thing where I would say, this is what a headline is and this is how you interview someone. We might do a little bit of that, but it was more like come into Live Magazine and write a review. It doesn't matter if you've never written a review. Just, like, listen to something and write down what you think about it. And then I'll help you shape it. Get on with it, basically. Just do it. Yeah. Just get on with it. And I think that's, you know, I think both of us got into what we do by just, just getting on with it. Mm. You find the thing that you have a little bit of an affinity towards. In my case, writing. In your case, photography. You use the resources you have at the end of your fingertips and you just do a thing. And that's what life was all about. It's just come in and do a thing. Like, the process is the product. Or... 
to quote Andre Anderson, who's someone I met through Life magazine, who now has an amazing project under the name of Freedom and Balance, who publishes books, just published a book called The Authors of the Estate, where he's, his idea is to turn council houses into publishing houses. It's wow. completely spectacular. And he says, the process is the prize. If it's not hard work, it's not artwork. That's beautiful. You know, they're lines that he's really developed over the years, but they're so useful as bridges for us to understand. So at Life magazine, the process was the prize. But actually the prize just keeps on giving because so many of those people, myself included, are now doing really amazing and interesting things. When I've been doing the How to Document Your Culture workshops on the back of Make Some Space, it's the same thing. I'll just come in with like a bunch of other publications or Instagram feeds or little bits of video people have made. And I ask people to think about what culture they're part of. And people are often like, oh, I'm not part of culture. And it's like, well, you are. What culture are you part of? And sometimes people go, oh, yeah, well, actually, me and my family, like, we all make music at the Gudwara. And so we travel around loads of different Gudwara and we play these traditional Sikh instruments. And I'm like, that is amazing culture. How are you going to document that? I did this one documentary culture workshop in a shed in South London. The whole story of the shed is a mad and amazing thing. But this young woman was there and uh, I said, so what are you involved with? And she was like, oh, nothing. I just sit here looking pretty. I was like, no. Well, yeah, of course. You look lovely there in the corner. But like, what else are you, what do you do? What are you interested in? And she was like, oh, nothing. And someone went, oh, she can draw. And it was like, okay, you can draw. So maybe... Perhaps you could do some illustrations of what's happening in the shed when all these people are coming in and making music and developing some amazing culture. And she was like, oh, yeah, actually, I do draw. Oh, yeah, I do draw. And I think watching someone actually absorb a piece of information about themselves, which is positive, which is creative and which is powerful. It's amazing for me to see it, but I genuinely believe that it is personally transformative as well. Because once you believe that about yourself, that you actually have an active thing to do, rather than just like, oh, it's my job to sit here and look nice, you can do anything. You don't have to make any money out of it, but you can do anything. Yeah, self-belief. It is. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the current state of music and music scenes and venues and things like that. I think it's very exciting. I think we should be ruthlessly pleased and grateful for all the amazing people doing amazing stuff all over the place, you know, in our cities, in towns, in villages, in like seaside places. Anyone that is making stuff happen now should be really, really pleased with themselves because it is not easy. Essentially, nightclubs and communal venues, as we knew them, have been wiped out. They pretty much don't exist in cities anymore. Certainly not in London, I can't speak for other cities. I think in places like Liverpool, that's not really true. But certainly in cities across the whole world, we're experiencing the same kind of pressures where our places are being removed from us. So in some ways, the the situation is quite bleak. But I think that bleakness is being responded to by us collectively in an amazingly positive way. And people are making things happen regardless You take the Matchstick Pie House in Deptford, where we've both been, to Steam Down. And that is a venue that should not exist. It's totally unviable. It's unviable in its existence, and it's unviable in its continued existence. It should not be there. It is only there because two people decided that they had to make a venue, that they needed a place to do their artwork. They were involved in a lot of like queer burlesque and theatre and these kind of things. Just didn't have anywhere to do it. And said one day, why are we all using the same upstairs room in a pub and paying someone for it? Why don't we just make it happen ourselves? So they got, I think, two business loans, found a space, and then ran a night every night for three months. 
in order to make the next three months rent and they made 50 quid more than they needed no one's taking any money it's all volunteer run they did the same thing for another three months and made maybe 150 quid did it again for three months maybe lost 400 quid so it is bare bones marginal precipital totally by the skin of their teeth they're making this thing happen but they is the key word this is a community of people who recognize its value and are getting involved volunteering uh, just generally making it happen so there's a high degree of ingenuity and low resource cleverness that is happening which i think is also ahead of a curve and that curve is the low resource nature of the future which in 20 years time 40 years time 50, 80 years' time, is going to be more low resource for more of us. We will be joining collectively in a low resourceness that people in the West haven't experienced for a very long time. So those of us that are engaged right now in making low resource culture happen are providing blueprints that probably other people are going to have to follow later on. So I feel very hopeful because we need places to gather. We collectively will always make them. And what happens in those places becomes amplified in situations like we're experiencing now of like resurgent right-wing thinking, proto-fascism, actual fascism and all the madness that's happening up at the kind of, you know, top strategic level of the world. We can't do anything about that. But what we can do is really dig deep into what is good on the ground. And I am extremely committed to doing that because it keeps me sane, for one thing. And I feel like it's true. What nights do you go to at the moment? I love to go to Steam Down. It makes me really happy. I feel very grateful to be there. Very lucky to have found it. Very lucky to know the people that do it. And I feel very grateful to be accepted and to be able to be there. There are places like Unit 31, who in a similarly low-resource way have been making a thing happen and putting on loads of incredible things. They're currently, as we speak now, in December in 2019 their situation has come to an end and they're celebrating this kind of ending with exhibitions and events and shows and just celebration of all the amazing culture that's been happening there i go to church of sound whenever that happens often i've no idea who the person is who's doing it but i trust that whatever is going to be there will be really great it's an evening that happens in a church run by the reverend rosemia brown who allows the church of sound to use her space when there's no mass happening. I really enjoy to hear those musicians in the round in a space that is very welcoming, in a space that feels pretty free. There's an absence of ID checks or all that crap on the door. And actually, I really object to ID checks on the door of music venues because you and me both know, don't we, that there are tons of people who went to nights who were really influential, who wouldn't have had ID. Loads of people don't have passports. There is a significant percentage of people in this country who don't have passports, and they are predominantly people who are of lower income, and also people who might be described as black or brown or immigrant in some shape or form. So there are plenty of people who don't have passports, plenty of people who don't have driving licences because they're expensive and if you don't have the money for travel then you probably won't have the money to get those things. And why should those people be excluded from our music venues? Why? It's like the hostile environment. Border Mm. Patrol has been brought down to the level of the nightclub and the music venue. Why should you have to show proof of identification to get into a music venue? Even if your status is not yet secure and you're here because, you know, you're here for reasons of migration or asylum, why should you not be able to go to a gig if you've saved up the money? I just think it's despicable. Anyone that's involved in venue making, 
needs to ask themselves that question too. Who am I excluding? Why am I excluding them? And why am I letting licensing committees mm. tell me that I have to act like Border Patrol? It's not good enough, particularly in cities where the culture is built so strongly on people who wouldn't necessarily have had the right ID. But that doesn't happen at Church of Sound. It doesn't happen at Church of Sound. Or Steam Down. And it doesn't happen at the Majestic <laughs> Pie House, so it doesn't happen at Unit 31. together to do a thing improvising music remembering that improvisation is a community action not like a fancy thing that special people do to like you know exclude you that like improvisation is the jam improvisation is the dance improvisation is what djs have been doing like they're improvising right they're not coming in with a planned set unless they're terrible <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah but i mean really i mean maybe, maybe you know where you're going to start and maybe you know roughly when you're going to go but no like good dj is going to plan the whole set are they because how can you do that no you can't because otherwise you're not in conversation with the people in the room mm. you're just in conversation with yourself and that is a bad jam <laughs> that is a noodle i don't want that but i'm very heartened by the amount of people just making stuff happen in the gaps and the gaps are really important how do you listen to music i tend to listen to music through speakers format is less important for me but i do still buy vinyl i've been buying and have acquired a whole load of music from international anthem which is a chicago-based label recently and that is just so pleasurable to have it really shows you why vinyl as a format can be just joyful to own because I'm not really into like fetishizing objects I think you know to have a tune that someone sent you that you can listen to on your phone or that you know you can just stream like that can be just as exciting as having this beautifully packaged thing but international anthem do such a good job of presenting their music in a way which is so artistic you know working with really interesting photographers and illustrators and designers just to make the whole thing sing have you got any favourite record sleeves that can be from any mm. any time in your life? Well, when you ask me that question, I'm just thinking about now. And so again, I have to say the international anthem, like the, the music they've put out this year, is visually stunning. It's stunning. I could just look at them for hours. You know, Angel Batdawid's album where you see Angel as a child sitting on a bench in church looking out at you, asking you questions even when she's probably only about eight through her face and her eyes and her, her stance, um, her posture. The Damon Locks album, which is like, it's all gold and red and layered and there's so much detail in there. And I just like, I want to look at it. To be honest with you, I don't often have that experience of being drawn through the eyes 
to a thing. I'm drawn through my ears and my body, like the feelings that music gives me, the vibration, the physical vibration. But I am drawn by these images. The Reservoir album, which is a different kind of record, all these beautiful blues and greens, very, very gentle, very pastoral looking, very natural looking. And I feel calmed when I look at it. And also Raymond Wong's artwork for everything TRC related, all the Church of Sound posters. Yeah, so they're not really album covers, but I think about the visual artists who are associated with the thing that I'm associated with now, which is all these amazing musicians who are highly schooled, who understand jazz, who understand producer culture. Then I'd say also Dora Lamb, who works as Dora the Drawer, who does the live paintings at gigs. You know, I love her work. I bought one off her, like a, a picture of Emma Jean Thackeray and Ben Lamar Gay and his band performing at a night I put on at Tate called Counterpoint. And it's like, I've got a painting that someone's made that captured this moment in time that I was at. Actually, that I made. I made the moment in time. And then she's made a picture. And Emma Jean Thackeray and Ben Lamar Gay made the music. And his band added their kind of like embellishments. And it's on my wall now. It's beautiful. Her pictures are so energetic. Mm. You can really get a sense of the, the energy of the music and the yeah. people in the room from her paintings. Definitely. And what's cool about her as well is she's also living proof of the concept that we're talking about, that no one has to give you permission to do these things. No one commissioned her to do that. She just one day at Jazz Cafe just did it because she felt to. And you don't have to be a big, larry, confident person to do that. Dora's like quite a reserved person, I'd say, quite like on the more quiet side. And yet she felt the calling to respond to the stimulus, the music, in the way that she knew best through art. And she did. And someone saw her doing it and asked her to do it again. And then someone saw her doing it and asked her to do it again. And now she's basically on tour. You look at her Instagram and she's posting up like all the different places where she's performing. And her performance is the translation of the stimulus into her art form, which is the painting. But no one gave her permission <laughs> she just felt to and she did it that's a good lesson but no one ever gave you permission did they to take photographs not explicitly mm. at certain points in my life I've had indirect permission from people mm-hmm. who've brought me to places mm-hmm. knowing that I've got my camera on me or knowing that I'm interested in taking photos mm. but that's different isn't it because that's about like reading the room and understanding the ways in which you're being accepted and the ways in which people might prefer you not to behave mm. so that's just empathetic response I think or a respectful response so to clarify what we're saying I think it's really good for us all to know that many people who do things which now look proper began at a point where we just did it because we felt we had to and that no one gave us permission but at the same time we are empathetic enough to look for the implicit permission or to be able to notice it if actually what we're doing is not welcome and if what we're doing is not welcome then that's fine we just step away and we don't do it do you think that there can ever be too much documentation Definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, number one, you can shut a thing down. You can ruin a thing. I'm very aware that I could ruin things by documenting them or talking about them too much before they're ready for it or hyping it or using it, abusing it for my own ends in some way, trying to kind of enact some sort of ownership, being extractive, which is another useful concept that I've picked up recently from Ted Jadale, who mentioned before. And so on all those kind of levels, yeah, it can be really damaging. Um, I also think like for us, if we love a thing, and I love the kind of cultures and music that I've been lucky enough to be part of, like you just want to be in it. And so it shouldn't be always about documenting it or being too strict about it or being too serious about it it should be light and we should be able to enjoy ourselves and to feel all that nourishment and goodness that we get from being in those environments and then 
to play our part. It's like an improvisation, isn't it, or a tune. Like, you know when the bass line's got to drop, but you don't want bass line all the time. Well, I might, because actually I really love it. <laughs> but in order for a tune to be balanced or an album to work or a set to make sense, you need these different kind of elements to come in and out. And so our documentation is like a melody line or a harmony or an amplification or a volume control or... Um, any other kind of technique which amplifies the thing. Maybe we're part of the mastering, balancing. Maybe we're part of the working it out. But we are in the music and what we do should complement the music, should complement the culture rather than drowning it or overtaking it or being like a really annoying out-of-tune solo that goes on for too long. Yeah, it sort of comes back to that community thing where everyone's got a role and it's an entity made up of different parts. And we often think of music as being one thing and community as being this other thing that's a bit worthy. But actually, it's all culture. And so I feel like a useful thing I can do and have been doing and will continue to do is putting the community back into music in a way where it doesn't feel like some weird subsector of charity. It's like oh, a community thing is over there and it's probably a bit shit, but, you know, it's worthy. I'm saying no. It's not. It's the thing. And when you put those two elements explicitly back together again, some really amazing things are going to happen in the moment because the process is the prize, but also because new culture will definitely be generated once those two things go back together again. Like they used to be with grime, in the sense that youth clubs are an important early doors part of the grime story. You know, the first time Dizzy Rascal ever did a thing was in a youth club where he DJed as DJ Dizzy D because <laughs> that was his DJ name before he became an MC. So I think there have been places in which that happened before. We've lost a lot of that with all the youth clubs and community centres. We've lost over 700 in the last 10 years due to austerity, which was a choice, not a need. UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty came and did a report in the UK and that's what he said. And it has been staggeringly devastating. So yeah, bringing back together of those two things is going to be really powerful. It has to happen. Yeah. It is happening. Mm. We have evidence on the ground of how it can work. And so we just need to keep doing it and not be stopped. Hear, hear. Going back to record sleeves, you showed me a record sleeve, a new graphic record, and you're on it. It's a beautiful illustration, and you're sitting at a table outside Total Refreshment Centre writing. I know. How does that feel? Oh, I know. It's so... I don't know. <laughs> so this record is really, it's a beautiful love letter to Total Refreshment Centre. It's called Fordham Road, like you say, by New Graphic, a.k.a. Fred Ntepe, who's a Parisian who spent a lot of time at Total Refreshment Centre. And the record was uh, rehearsed and recorded there. In fact, I remember walking through the corridors one day when, when they were doing it and just hearing like the edges of the music just powdering over me and uh, clocking it, going through to somewhere else, and then like that becomes the record. But Fred commissioned an illustration for the cover, which is the outside of the building. And inside the building, you see various characters from the building. You see Gus Alabaster de Plume with the Labour Party poster, because he's a campaigning member of the Labour Party. And you see some characters who represent the building's past as a Caribbean social club. And then you've got these various characters, and then there's me writing the book about Total Refreshment Centre. Just I'm a lesser character, a female character at the front, of the building like writing away in a notebook and Fred showed this to me at a party he said oh Emma, I want to show you something and he showed it to me and I I've never really had an experience like that before I was shocked happy like wowed I think is the word I was wowed I was like what I'm in it but I'm not I'm like and then I was like no actually I'm not I am in it I am in it. That's true. I am in the story and I am now in a representation of the story. And it's great to lose your position as like some outsider who's coming in to do a thing because I'm, I am of the entity. 
as soon as I walked in there, I loved it. And I'm operating from a position of love. And so to have that reflected back at me was really beautiful. I feel very, very happy and grateful to be in a story in that way. really nice cover I'm gonna link to it in oh, the lovely. show notes so people can see it gorgeous yeah the illustrator did a really beautiful job on it do you know who the illustrator is I don't off the top of my head but I think interestingly he's not part of the TRC community and so he's doing it from a outsider perspective but this is where the outsiders can be really useful because you can sometimes bring an idea that you wouldn't bring if you were in it there's another person I should mention actually called Kimberly Sita C-I-T-A who is in Melbourne I think and she began to love all the music from afar. She'd never been to the UK, but she loved what was happening with what people call UK jazz. Like, totally loved it. She's a graphic designer, artist. And she made this family tree of, like, everybody. And it's really beautiful. It's like a dubstep family tree. Or Jeremy Della's Acid House, Brass Brand kind of thing. A diagram like that. There's a bit of a history of these family trees. Anyway, Kimberly made one from afar. Uh, it's a really beautiful thing. But obviously, immediately, loads of people were like, oh, that person's not in it. What about that person? And you haven't done this bit right. So she responded with fantastic graciousness and was like, oh, thank you, everyone, for telling me about my mistakes so that I can do it better. So she did another version. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, it's nearly right. But you forgot this person. What about that person? Oh, my God, you haven't put this person in it. Oh, thank you very much for telling me where I've got things wrong. I'm very grateful. And so we ended up with kind of six versions. But it's really beautiful. And by the end of it, she was like, well, so I finished the sixth version and, and it now is what it is. It's not going to be perfect and there might be some people who are missed off and obviously things have evolved since I finished it, but this is a moment in time and now it's closed. And it's a really, it is a kind of beautiful artistic exploration of the interconnectedness of all things, but of this particular thing. Yeah, they're really hard maps, aren't they, to draw mm. because especially with a scene that is evolving so quickly, yeah. I don't know how you can possibly get everybody in because there'd be a new person that's important. I know, you finish one week. circle and then suddenly something else comes up, yeah. What is this book you're working on at the moment? So I'm working on a book about dancing. So I've taken a line from Make Some Space, which is Dancing is Medicine, and I've extrapolated that outwards, outwards into some very far realms. And so I've written a kind of a big outline for it and I've written a chapter and I'm now in the process of starting to kind of dig into the material. And then once I've got enough material, I'll start to shape it and it will probably become another book. That's exciting. Mm, yeah, it's exciting. Are you working on anything else at the moment that you're excited about? I've got like four Sweet Machine pamphlets, which are unfinished, which are all really beautiful entities. Some conversations I started and didn't complete, some conversations I got some distance with and didn't complete, some things which are in process. I also want to make a workbook for Make Some Space as well. I started off calling it a score because I thought it was like a score that people could follow to be able to talk about their places that they love. You know, you were 
there yesterday when we were talking at Printed Matter Bookshop in Hastings and I was explaining that we miss some language around how we love a place you know I know how to say this is my boyfriend or this is my girlfriend or this is my best friend but I don't know how to say this is my place friend I don't know how to say this is a building or a room that I love and that I have a relationship with and that maybe I feel loves me too and someone said that's just home isn't it <laughs> but I've been thinking about how I can take some of the things I've learned about how we can talk about these places and to codify it into a workbook of some kind or a score or a script or a thing and I, I want to publish that on Sweet Machine but it's a slippery thing and it keeps on changing I probably just need to say I'm not going to do anything else for a week and I'm just going to fix this thing down I'm going to pin it down I'm going to look at it I'm going to see what shape it needs to be and I'm going to make it into the shape it needs to be and then I can publish it that sounds awesome actually do you think so? Do you think it would be useful? I think it would suit Make Some Space because it is like a manifesto as well and it does inspire other people to document their cultures. And that instructional element was purposeful. This is not a time for any of us that are doing stuff to be keeping secrets about how we do it. We need to be like wildly explicit about what we do and how we do it and making sure that other people know that it's actually easy. None of this stuff is easy to do, but actually the decision to do a thing is easy and I am determined to make it as clear as possible how I did it so that you can choose to ignore that what I did <laughs> or to, to use it as a guide until you find your own way. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Emma, for joining me today. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and an education as always. Well, vice versa. It's like I'm learning through the process of talking to you. I'm always learning. We're always learning and we're all learning together. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Emma Warren for sharing her vision of sound, to Francis Redman for the soundtrack, and Ian Phillips for the recording. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. This will really help other people to find vision of sound and hear from the talented artists we talk to. Visit georginacook.net forward slash vision of sound or at the Vision of Sound on Instagram for images to accompany this and other episodes.